I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another episode of the Friday Podcast, and uh, Happy New Year. We got a new year upon us. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by the Friday. We launched our events calendar, the first tranche of events, yesterday. So two of them sold out, and we still have a few spots remaining for the Boomerang at Seoul Park, um, and we are also doing a lottery for the coup de gras at the Dunes Club with uh, opportunity to play Lost Dunes the day before as well. So those uh, you can find all the information on our website if you navigate the website to the events tab. And we will have some more of our events going on sale at the beginning of February. So get involved. They're really fun uh, one-day events. And uh, thank you for those that are coming who have come to them. Uh, it's, it's a great way to meet fellow golf uh, nuts and Thanks for the support. So without uh, further ado, let's get our guest, Joseph Lamania, who's an up-and-coming uh, voice in the golf space. Uh, he writes a wonderful newsletter called Finding the Edge on Substack that I read every week. Nice that he focuses mostly on golf, but he also covers some other sports, you know, general sports topics. It's a really, really delightful read uh, that comes out once a week, as well as uh, his, he has a business that helps... Uh, PGA Tour players and, uh, you know, Corn Ferry Tour players with uh, golf course strategy. So uh, Joseph came on uh, to preview the 2022 year of golf. We talk a wide range of topics, go down a lot of different rabbit holes. Uh, he brings a great statistical mind to it as well as a kind of eye for golf. And he watches a lot of golf. So that helps. So here is Joseph Lamagna, and uh, can't wait for another year of golf. Joseph, are you uh, a man of uh, New Year's resolutions or not? Maybe it's to whine less about coverage, but I think we could all do that probably. So maybe I'll try and lead the charge on abstaining from some of the coverage takes. Yeah, it's a it's a delicate line with coverage because if nobody nobody whines, nothing happens. If everybody whines, then it's just it makes it worse. You know, it's it's just a. Uh, I think so, more more of the blame needs to be put on on the organization that um, sells the rights and then has kind of their thumb on the scale all year, um, of and and forces the networks to do a lot of prepackaged stuff and graphics throughout the telecast i think that's you know part part of why the coverage is the way the coverage is but i definitely don't think it's uh, it's great yeah actually i think i'm going to take that back because i'm not ready to give up the whining about coverage takes it does warrant a lot of criticism so i think i'm going to stick with it this year i am excited to see what like new things they roll out uh that last like four weeks are like the uh I'll never forget when they did the uh the walk and talk interviews at the at Kapalu a couple of years ago and, and Leishman was in the lead and they talked to him and then this next drive like goes in the junk and you know JT's like I'm never doing that and it uh you know it, in general mid game interviews in every other sport are possibly the most pointless things in the world that never get anything valuable said in them it's it's terrible. I don't know why people are, have this appetite for hearing what these players are saying on the golf course. I want to hear them talk through shots, but outside of that, <laughs> I don't need to hear any of that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, 2022 is upon us, whether we're uh, ready for it or not, and uh, figured it'd be great to have you on to kind of set up the year, talk about what we're looking forward to for the year. And then uh, just some a few other things. Uh, you're obviously deep in the analytics, but you also watch a lot of golf. And uh, you know, I think you're you marry the analytics with the eye test quite well. And I'd I'd love to start off talking. I think kind of the story of the year, 
at the beginning of the year is the youth in the top 10, top 20, top 50 in the world rankings, top 100, really. Um, we're at an unprecedented level of young talent. Do you see this stopping? Do you, are we getting younger? Uh, are we going to keep getting younger? Uh, this is obviously by far the youngest top 10 in the world ra- rankings we've ever seen. Yeah, I definitely don't think we're going to get older. But I also don't think that some of these players that I guess we'd call older are done yet by any means. I mean, if you include like Rory, Brooks, Kepka, those guys aren't old at all. And I think they're a huge part of the picture for 2022. So I guess the way I'm looking at it, I think there's an enormous amount of parity going into 2022. And at any given large event, you've got 15 to 20 players who can win, which is really exciting to look forward to. That's the exciting thing. I think people lament that, oh, it's so young. I don't really know who these guys are. I think one of golf's biggest strong suits is the longevity of their stars. You know, people have gotten to know Phil Mickelson, whether you like him or dislike him, for 30 years. Um, with these guys, a lot of people don't know much about them, and there hasn't been that much time for their, their personalities to really come out uh, and be on display. But what you hit on, like the NFL feasts on parity, the idea of, of, of players having dramatic swings year to year is totally possible because of their youth here. Like, you know, the, the reality with golf is like rarely who's the best at 22 is the best at 28. And what we're seeing is a lot of guys that are really good at 22, 24 bursting onto the scene. And some of their counterparts And a perfect example would be like Sam Burns. Like nobody was talking about Sam Burns last year. And now he's 10th in the world. And we're going to see guys make jumps up. And we're also going to see guys jump down. Yeah, and I'd be curious for your opinion on this. But I think a big part of what you've hit on in, in understanding a player's personality, so to speak, is seeing what they do in really large moments. And I think the current structure of the tour, without <laughs> complaining too much, doesn't allow for a lot of those really intense moments to happen. I mean, you have to have a major championship come down to the wire and see a player hit a shot in an intense situation to, to really feel that intensity. If we had more match play, for example, you might see a lot more of that. Uh, but I mean, how much information do you glean from Cameron Champ winning the 3M Open? I mean, does that reflect much of his personality? So I, I think that that's at play here. I think th- I think how players close out their first wins, you know, is a big deal, right? and how they get it done. I think you see them, any win on tour when it's your first is a really big deal. I think like any win on tour is a big deal in general, but particularly for a young player, getting that first win off their back early is a big deal. And it it gives you an idea of how they process things. Because typically I think with golf, like just in general, you know, the normal human being reaction is that you move up levels in golf and you're uncomfortable. And what happens when you play golf uncomfortable is typically people get a little quick and they don't hit the ball as well. They make dumb decisions. They make their rush. They just, you know, everything's moving fast, right? It's hard to process. You you hear this with the NFL or the NBA all the time, the speed of the game. I think like in a way, mentally, the speed of the game in golf is that way when you move up levels. But then there are these extraordinary talents, and we've seen a lot of them come on the scene lately where the game, it doesn't really matter because they're so good, you know, and they know that they're that good. Whereas like some players, you know, if they aren't hot right at the way, like that's the thing with golf is like if you're not hot right when you need to be hot, you're not getting up there for a year, a year and a half, two years with like what happened with the pandemic. So that I think is uh, one of the things with it. Like, I think like the, that first win, but I agree like match play brings it out because nobody wants to lose a match. And it puts that like final round pressure on every single round that you play match play, right? You, you feel that that's why playing match play is such a great practice for just regular Joe's who want to be better at golf is because it puts you in these situations where you feel pressure. It could be, you could be playing for nothing. You just don't want to lose. Um, but yeah, I, I think that I kind of like have started to think about like, where are the barometer moments? Like, you know, it's like Christmas day games in the NBA are barometer moments. You know, when, rival teams that are 
clearly going to make the playoffs in the NFL or barometer moments. And there are a few tournaments on the PGA Tour schedule in the lead up to major season now that are clear barometers. I think like Torrey Pines stands out, uh, Riviera, obviously, Arnold Palmer, and then you've got obviously the players, which is whatever you want to call it, the 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 biggest tournament. But there, but the problem is then after the majors, there aren't really those barometer moments. Agree, and and again, I think with match play, you would get that organically because you're resetting the score every day. And right now, you have so many runaway tournaments where a player on the back nine doesn't have to hit many stressful shots. You wouldn't have that with match play. So I guess another barometer moment. If you watch a lot of PGA Tour golf, I think some of the most exciting shots are Friday afternoon when a player has a big shot on 18 to make the cut and you know it has a really big impact on his career and if he's going to get his card next year. Like I think those are some of the most exciting moments. We could create a lot more of those by, you know, varying the format a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's funny cuz like, you know, Shane and Max Homa did the Get a Grip pod and and Max was on there regularly for all last year. The back catalog if you haven't listened to that is wonderful to go listen to. But um one of the things Max always talked about was like there needs to be more coverage dedicated to the players on the cut on Friday. Like that should be what you're leading with with the coverage. Is like this guy, he's too off the cut. He hasn't made it like, you know, because that's where also like the pressure of like keeping your card, not to use Paul Easinger's line there, but like, you know, reshuffles are are dictated by like cuts made and and where you are on priority lists. Like there's more than just the making the cut at that event that ride on a lot of these tournaments is is like, is this rookie going to be able to get starts for the next month? Because a lot of times if if you don't play well, then you're out of out of starts until you know the middle of summer. It's like you these guys need flow a lot of times to play well. Yeah, and I also think you should consider what are the incentives on a Saturday. And, and I'm not saying that those rounds aren't important, but if if we're talking about the viewing experience, like what's going to get you really excited about some shots on Saturday, especially when a player's tied for 40th place? Because even moving from 40th to 30th isn't going to have that big of an impact on a player's career. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's definitely the hardest sport to televise, which is a, you know, somehow we've switched the topic, come back to the coverage discussion here. But uh, <laughs> it's definitely, definitely the most difficult sport to televise because there is so much going on. Um, and I think, like, eventually we're going to get to a point where it's a kind of, like, red zone like experience where you, you could switch around or maybe not red zone, but maybe like league pass where you could switch around and, and watch different groups. But we're seemingly a ways, a ways away from that uh, outside of the week of the players and, and Augusta national. So um, one thing I wanted to talk about with the youth, like it, obviously the two big stories of, of youth would be Victor Hovland and, uh, and Colin Morikawa who are both in the top, seven of the world rankings. Hovland has kind of made a sprint up. In terms of these guys and and what's made them so successful, is the is the early indicator for, you know, success elite ball striking? Because these are the two guys. I mean, is it that obvious? Like who's going to succeed is going to be the best ball strikers? I think that's a big part of it. I tend to view every player individually and I probably value putting more than a lot of people who do a lot of golf analytics work. Uh, clearly with Colin Morikawa, we're seeing an iron player who we haven't seen in a long time, probably since Tiger Woods. I think what's remarkable about Colin is that he's not just the best long iron player, but he's also the best wedge player, which is really weird to see both of those statistics lined up next to each other because you just don't see this in golf very often when somebody's dominant and two different categories like that a lot of times like what makes you really good at long iron play takes away from your wedge play or what makes you really good you know like it's that's really that's the super crazy thing what do you mean by what what makes you good at your long irons can, so, can take away from your- like a perfect example like one of the best drivers of the golf ball i've ever seen was rico uh hoy at uh usc who's playing on the corn ferry tour i believe now you know he could he just hit this little cut and he could hit driver off the deck. He just was a machine with, he still is a machine with the driver, 
But like why he was such a good driver, you know, he he didn't hit the ball like the furthest. He could have hit it a lot further, but he was really steep. And that steepness like really hurt his wedge play, right? And I think like a lot of times, like you get players that are sweepers, like who, you know, are sweepers are really good wedge players, but they aren't always as good with long irons. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because I think technique is probably a, a missing from the statistics conversation a lot and that's probably something people will start to spend a lot more time thinking about even when it comes to technique chipping that's something i've been thinking about a lot recently you see tiger talking about drawing chips and then you start to think of the elite players in the history of the game who've kind of drawn their chips it's interesting to think about technique that way yeah and and obviously like hovland who you were talking about before i i cut you off is somebody that has like completely reworked his short game technique in recent years. And I think that's been a big part of his improvement. Agree. He still has some room to grow with the chipping, uh, but he's not a bad putter by any means. And he's an unbelievable driver of the golf ball. He's consistently gaining distance on his peers. And he's a very accurate driver of the ball. Both, both Morikawa and Hovland are some of the most accurate drivers in the world among top 10 players in the world. Distance and like strokes gained off the tees is really interesting because just in terms of distance, I think the the correlation of driving distance and rank in the world success on the PGA Tour, whether you deem that money list or scoring average, has definitely risen in the last ten years. It's become, uh, you know, forever approach was king, and now you might be able to argue make the argument that distance is is king over approach play. Um, it, from your standpoint, do you, do you see that trend continuing and distance be continuing to become more and more important or will approach play is Colin Morikawa essentially like the savior of, of approach play is still King. Yeah. I think people get a little too bogged down in sweeping generalizations. So all strokes gained are equal. If you gain a stroke on the green, one full stroke, it's identical to gaining one full stroke off the tee. Now, gaining strokes off the tee tends to be more predictive of future success than gaining a bunch of your strokes on the green, but that doesn't have to hold true for every player. So if you watch Colin Morikawa and you believe, I'm seeing something special, he's an unbelievable iron player, that's going to persist, then he can continue to gain his strokes with the iron play. So do I think that you'll see a lot of, do, do I think strokes gained off the tee will sort of be king because it's a reliable skill and players are going to make a lot of money being really good drivers of the ball? Yes. But it doesn't mean that all the top players in the world have to win that way. Yeah. It's like the comparison to baseball pitchers, right? A guy that throws 98 shows up every day and throws 98. He doesn't have to rely on his, his cutter cutting. You know, he's got just the ability to overpower it and it's there every day. And I think that's the the that consistency, like you talked about, is the big thing with distance. But I think that same thing's there with iron play. And if you look at the the long longevity in golf, I think it is directly correlated typically with iron play. Like iron play is the skill that endures. That's why Tiger Woods won uh, you know, the Masters a couple of years ago. That's why Phil Mickelson won the PGA, is because these guys are generational iron players. And I think that that will hold true, you know, in terms of like the longevity argument, which could be, you know, it. that's where I think the Colin Morikawa discussion is a very interesting one because of his, he's not necessarily short, but he's not long, but he does have this elite iron play, um, you know, and he's winning at a, you know, historic rate. He's not at a tiger rate, but he's at a Phil or Ernie rate, which is, you know, one of the, 10 to 15 best players of all time. So, you know, where do you see, you know, with Kyle Morikawa, it's, it's early, it's hard to predict the future, but like, what do you see from him at a statistical level that, that do you think of this is sustainable on the path that he's been the last two years? I do think it's sustainable. Part of the picture that I think is really relevant about Kyle Morikawa is how straight he hits his driver. I hope that's not lost on people because that's a very consistent part of Colin's game. He is one of the most accurate drivers on the tour. So when you combine really straight driving with unbelievable iron play, you're going to get consistent results. His short game has room for improvement, but I think that's the main limiting factor here, even more so than his length. 
So you're saying Morikawa is a rich man's Ches Rigby? Really rich. <laughs> he's he's a Jeff Bezos Ches Rigby. He he does hit it longer than Ches Rigby. <laughs> you know, it, so it, this is a you know, in terms of like when we look at like average to short hitters in in recent history, you just all you have to do is look at the list of people that have won the most major championships in, in golf history. And you go down and it's like Nick Faldo, Zach Johnson, Jordan Spieth. Like, especially if you look at players like post Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer era players, like there's not a long list of, of short hitters who've had sustained su- success on the PGA tour. Yeah. And I think that that gets into an interesting conversation around winning versus consistency and and I think something you see on tour right now with with this distance push is when you have a long hitter who finds a swing for the week and hits the ball straight, puts himself in a really good position to win. And so it, it maybe that results in some more volatile results. But when they find their game for a week, they're 20 yards past Colin Morikawa consistently. It's really hard to overcome that distance advantage. So if you're looking at particularly major championship winners, I think you're going to see a lot of people who hit the ball straight that week. And that's, uh, I think Bryson is a prime example. When he hits the ball straight, good luck. He's an unbelievable putter and he's bombing the ball past you, but he's going to miss some cuts that he wouldn't have missed if he was, you know, didn't go on this distance pursuit. And, and Morikawa likewise is like, he's so consistent tee to green. It's really a matter of like, if he putts well, he's going to have a chance to win. You know, if he puts above average, he's going to be in the mix. And if he puts well, he's going to win. Um, with with that, like, do you ever, is there any way to look at skills? Like who has like lots of peak performances, like where their, their best is really good. You know, they might be average, but they have, you know, a lot of above average and below average. They're average because like they have a lot of good and bad and there isn't a lot of in between. Yeah, there are ways you can look at that. Um you know, we adjust our strokes gained for strength of field. So you could kind of look at who has the most variance in their overall strokes gained performances. Um, you know, I think Bryson would be a pretty good example off the top of my head of somebody whose peaks and valleys are going to be pretty extreme, but that's beneficial in the modern PGA Tour ecosystem where points and world ranking points are, are often determined pretty heavily by winning and, and less so by finishing tied for 18th place. Yeah, this is something I've been thinking about. I, I heard, um, what was I listening to? I was listening to a Zach Lowe podcast, and he had uh, Jeff Van Gundy on. And Van Gundy, and this is something I think about all the time, Van Gundy was talking about like how everybody's chasing consistency. And when you listen, when you re- if you remember back when Tiger was in his prime, all he was ever chasing was consistency. The best players in the world are just trying to get more consistently good. And what's really a, it's kind of almost divergent from like the idea of sport. Like you want players on your team. You want the guy that like, you know, he's going to get 23 points a night regardless. You know, he want the running back that gets, you know, four yards of carry when it's a bad run. And then like what Jonathan Taylor's doing this year. Um, You don't want the guy that like might drop 40 and then (laughs) go bagel for a month on you, you know? And I think what's, what the tour system has done is like between the OWGR and the way the FedEx cup is set up is like, and winning is hard. You know, it's the hardest thing to do is, is win, but is it over rewarded? You know, because if everybody's, if, if the best players in the, every sport are striving for more consistent results, you know, shouldn't consistency be more rewarded? Yeah, I agree. And I, when you say is it over rewarded, like according to who, and th- and that's kind of comes back to your point on different sports, right? In the in professional basketball, when you get to the playoffs, it's a seven game series, and the home team has a significant advantage. It's not that high variance of a sport, so every game during the regular season actually does carry some importance. Whereas when on the PGA Tour, if, if you're Brooks Kepka, and that's probably who I should have led with in terms of being high variance. He looks at the schedule and he says, look, I just want to win these major championships, maybe contend a few other times throughout the year. I'm not after consistency because the tour doesn't incentivize it. So when you say, is it over-rewarded or under-rewarded? I think from a structural perspective, it's under-rewarded. 
And I, this might tie back to what you were talking about at the at the onset about creating these moments. Like I think, like I think Brooks Kepka, if if there were more competitive moments in some of these smaller events, like in match play, like Brooks Kepka strikes me as a guy, like especially when he played that Bryson match, which I tuned into for a little bit. But like you know, going into that, I kind of was like a buddy asked me about it, and I'm like, listen, I just. I know Brooks Kepka doesn't want to lose to Bryson probably more than he wants to win. And I imagine that Brooks is that type of competitor where like he hates losing maybe more than he likes winning. And I think a lot of a lot of tour players are like that. And that's where that that match play probably would bring out more competitive situation. It also bring a lot more drama to the PGA Tour. Uh, I completely agree. I think it's also easier to cover from a television perspective. Um, but no, I agree with you. I think some of the better golf Brooks Kepka played this year was probably in that match with Bryson DeChambeau. And I don't think that's a coincidence. It's not that I don't... He played good at the Ryder Cup too. Right, right. It, but I mean, what gets you up in the morning for a Saturday round at a random 72-hole stroke play event if you're one of the best players in the world? Yeah. It's I I don't know you know it's it's money and at a certain point these guys have so much money it doesn't it's not that significant which is crazy to say as somebody that doesn't have that kind of money it's like when these guys kind of it's like oh hundred thousand dollars whatever well Andy if it makes you feel any better I too do not have that kind of money <laughs> and I <laughs> I understand um so let's talk about uh. One topic I wanted to touch on was Rory's uh, resurgence in the in the back half of the the season when most people were not paying attention after the Ryder Cup. Rory played some of the best golf that we've seen in some time. Is Rory back? I mean, I think it depends on what you mean by being back. Do I think Rory McIlroy will win golf tournaments in 2022? Yes. Do I think he'll win a major? No, it's not my expectation. Um, Rory... He he has an unbelievable short game. I don't know if his putting is appreciated enough by anybody not named Brad Faxon. Um, he, his short game's incredible. The iron play does struggle periodically, and he hits some of these shots that it feels like everything with Rory is full speed, and every iron shot, he puts everything into it, and you're just hoping it ends up near the hole and doesn't go 24 five feet offline. And I think that kills him in some of these big major championships where he makes these mistakes. I know at Torrey Pines, he had the unbelievable recovery. I think he chipped in on Friday after a really wild iron shot, but you got to start to think about how do those iron shots play at Augusta? Oh, he got up and down. Right, right. And, but that doesn't work everywhere. And, and I think with Rory, you see these loose iron shots and some of these decisions that make you you know, a little bit, <laughs> make you scratch your head. And he he does it with more frequency than I think is, is indicative of a top player in the world. Again, another example, just a random poll, but his tee shots at the tour championship a couple years ago, I don't know if people remember this, but he almost hits a drive into the water on 18 on his Thursday or Friday round, gets away with it. Then the next day he does the same thing again and, and tops his second shot into the water. It, at some level, I think the course management is an issue for Rory. Yeah, you know, he might hit some of the worst shots of an all-time great player that we've ever seen. Like, I mean, like some of the wedges. I, I remember when he was at the final group with Justin Thomas at Bridgestone a few years ago, and it was just like, how is this guy in the final group? Like, he's hitting wedges that are sailing over greens by, you know, 15 yards. and But at the same time, I, you know, the the skill set in general is intoxicating and i you know i don't know he he's a guy that you just can't quit but like i don't i think gone are the days of him like one of the things that might be a pet peeve of mine is like well rory's the most talented player out there i think that time is long gone yeah and i don't i wouldn't push back too much on him being one of the most talented players out there but i mean it's it's also about what you do with your talent and i'm i'm kind of frustrated watching some of these iron shots sail over the back of a green and leave himself short-sided when I think exercising just a little bit more restraint and a little more control over his iron shots would go a long way. I mean, if he's one of the top top 10 putters ever, he should rely on, you know, making 15 footer every once in a while. I know people poke fun at that comment, but I, Rory is an 
outstanding putter, especially right now. But if you think about people have said that Rory does well in soft conditions. I, I do think there's something to the impact that soft conditions have on an errant approach shot. And when it doesn't bound super far away from the hole and it's soft, so it's easier to get up and down, right? It's not as punishing as in firm conditions. Rory's errant iron shots aren't punished as much. So I think there's something there. That's so that's an interesting point. So he's a great like obviously, like nobody he nobody's gonna argue. He's one of the greatest players ever, and he's probably the player of his generation. Now, like what prohibits him from being really great are the bad misses. And that makes sense. Like when it's soft, the bad misses are uh, the penalty might go from, you know, a half a shot to point three shots, and that's why he plays well in soft conditions. And it also exaggerates length a little bit as well, right? Which is only going to play into Rory's hand. So I don't think it's random that people get excited for soft conditions, Rory. And I also don't want to say that he's a bad iron player. He's not a bad iron player. He's a great iron player, but he hits some really bad iron shots. And those come back to bite you when you're trying to you know, win a major championship at Augusta. Yeah. So uh, as, as somebody who is you know a fan because I grew up, these are the players of my, my youth, my generation watching these young guns, the young guns of yesteryear. I kind of like, as I think about today with Morikawa, Burns, Hovland, Scheffler, I can't like help in Rom. I mean, you have to put Rob in there, but I can't help to think back to like the, the mid two thousands when you had tiger, but then you had the youngins of, of Adam Scott, Justin Rose and, uh, and Sergio Garcia hitting the scene. And, uh, are, do those three have any hope anymore? They're they're they just are like you know seemingly just wandering around the top fifty in the world line lately. Uh, Justin Rose I've, it hadn't been outside of the top fifteen in the world forever until last year, and he he kind of rock bottomed out. But you know played some encouraging golf at the end of the year. Like what do you see as these guys who are you know probably at the back end of their prime is, is the way golf used to be are now like at kind of like where you're like, wow, they're just like average players right now. Yeah, I think it's easy to talk about golf and, and pretend like you know what you're talking about. So you should, I, I do believe people should make some predictions and, and be willing to put their name behind them. So one that I'm, I'm willing to say in 2022, I think you're going to see a really good year from Justin Rose. Again, I, just from watching him this year and then also looking pretty deep into his data, I, I think he has is showing flashes of a really strong player. Every putt he hits looks like it's going to go in. Uh, I know people can say that putting's really you know, high variance and isn't that predictive, but when you watch somebody who's that talented with the putter, at some point he finds a swing for a week and gets himself into contention. I don't know if people remember, Justin Rose was the number one ranked player at the end of 2018 with a couple weeks to go in 2018. Made a bad equipment deal with Hanma, I think almost objectively, and his game kind of fell off. But seeing some flashes in this past year, and I think he's going to have a really good year. He finished top 10 in two of the majors this year, I believe. He's driving the golf ball well. Incredible putter. I think you're going to see a really good year from him. I mean, this is this is the guy that's like the model of consistency with Justin Rose. Like, I mean, it was him and Rory were the two guys that hadn't been outside the top 15 in the world, I think, since 2008, and they both fell out last year, which was kind of crazy. Um, it's just like a, a signal of, like, the changing times in golf. But, you know, they, you know, a crazy, crazy run of consistency with both those players. But, like, just wrote, that's the thing. What, what you said about putting, like, it's crazy. The variance is nuts with it. But everybody knows when they play with a really great putter, how you're just frightened that every putt and every putt looks like it's going to go in, whether it goes in or not. Like th- there's, there's a difference between bad putters and really good putters who might be in a, in a slump, you know, it's like a shooting slump, you know? I agree. And if you're thinking about like Augusta, I mean, how many players would you rather have hit a 10 footer for you than Justin Rose? It's a short list. Do you, do you see any, Big changes, like anything. Are you going to be watching what the impact of green books 
have and not being allowed? Like, do you, is there, is there anything to be watching? Like, what should people be watching if they want to signal? Cause I think there's going to be a lot of like, you know, just this is the way of media now and, and, and social media. <laughs> there's going to be grand sweeping conclusions all over the place within a week, which is obviously the wrong thing to do about Green's books. But like, what should we look for with like the impact of maybe not that not having Green's books could have on tour? So I'm of the opinion, and it's not informed by much data, it's purely speculation. I do not think the Greens reading books are going to have much of an impact on player performance. If you want to track whether or not it does, what I would do is I would wait, if you can, about four to five months and then check like the tour make percentage between like five and 10 feet or whatever they have up on the website just the tour average, compare it to the last couple years and see if there's a big drop off. I am skeptical that there is, that there will be, but I think that's a reasonable way to look at it. And also like, let's see what happens with Bryson. I think Bryson's one of the best putters in the world. Is his putting performance really going to drop off because there's no greens reading books? I honestly don't think so. But like a small drop off would be a big blow to Bryson like in in that department right I mean that's the difference between being a top five player and a top 15 player it is and I'd be curious for his perspective on it but how different is hitting a 12 footer after you've looked at the greens reading book versus if you didn't have any access to that I mean I understand that there's a difference there but you're only making that putt what 35 percent of the time anyway like 40% 40% of the time. A lot has to go wrong for it to be the difference between making a putt and missing a putt. Yeah. And who knows what these guys will have in the books. Like they can't test drivers uh, reliably <laughs> before, t- before tournaments. So like, who knows if they're even going to check if, if guys are using old books or using new books. And before anybody says it's a game of honor, anytime millions of dollars are at stake, uh, people cheat. So that's uh, it's just a general good rule of thumb to, to live by. Uh, with uh, everybody's favorite exercise, it's a new year. Who is going to be the breakout players of, of 2022? Last year gave us Jason Kokrak, who nobody saw coming, and uh, Sam Burns. This, this is, uh, I, I have a lot of different ways I, I try and rummage about and figure out uh, who could be, you know, a little undervalued. I'm curious about your ideology of, of trying to identify players that might be, you know, prime for breakout and a few players that you have on your list. Yeah. And I guess when I think about this, my head goes more to names of players who could be in contention a lot. So yeah, that that's the way I think too. You know, you got to look at guys that are going to be on the board a lot. Right. And like, how many corn fairy tour players end up being a really relevant part of the PGA tour season for the next year. So that's not to say that, that it can't happen that one of these new, you know, guys who just got status will be really relevant week in and week out. But when I was thinking about breakout players, I wasn't really thinking about that basket of names. It could happen, but I'm thinking more about who do I expect to be contending week in and week out in major championships Maybe this is a hot take. Maybe not. I mean, it shouldn't be. I think Brooks Kepka is primed for a really, really good year. I know that's a name everyone knows. It's not a secret that he plays well in major championships. But when you listen to people making their predictions for who will win majors next year, and you know, you look at whatever Vegas markets, I don't think Brooks Kepka is getting the respect that he deserves as one of the best players in a really long time. So that's a player that I think could have a, a really big 2022 unbelievable iron player hits the ball far when he's putting well he's he can make a ton of birdies I, I just don't see why he's not a part of every conversation about major championships and most importantly like psychologically brooks probably feels disrespected which we've seen it's like when he plays his best golf <laughs> because people are kind of writing him off and slighting him He's, I mean, he's 16th in the world, which is absolutely crazy to think for a guy that's won four major championships in the last, what, three years, four years? I, I don't think he has many top finishes over the last, you know, 12 months. Cause, and again, it's, it's hard to say he doesn't care, but I really don't think he cares that much. He's got a couple of good finishes in majors. He won in Phoenix. Other than that, I mean, you'd have to dig through a little bit to find 
too many other good finishes. So I think he's going to have a really good 2022, and I don't think he cares where he ranks on the FedEx Cup point system. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else you got? Another example of a, a player that I think has a, an opportunity to be in contention week in and week out, somebody who kind of had a quiet 2021, but maybe not that quiet if you dig into it a little more, is Xander Shoffley. Man, going with the no names. <laughs> well, we can get to some we can get to some no names, but Xander was pretty quiet <laughs> for a lot of 2021. I understand he won the Olympics, but he, he wasn't that relevant for a lot of the back half of 2021. He started to hit the driver a little bit crooked. If he gets that back on track, I think Xander could absolutely win his first major. When you hear other players talk about Xander, they have enormous respect for his game so i think that's somebody who could be relevant but we can get we can get to some longer shots um another another somewhat big name but he just seems to have completely escaped public conversation is will zalatoris so i don't know if that counts as a a breakout player or not but i'm i'm i think i'm out you're out on zalatoris i'm out on the putting the putting just i'm just i just don't know if i like i think he's gonna contend so much but I, I have a question about will he win very much. He didn't win a lot. Like, as great as he was on the Corn Ferry Tour, they were high finishes. They weren't wins. Um, as great of a college player as he like, he didn't, he he won match, like, he won the Junior Am. That's his big, like, title. That's match play. It's a lot different than stroke play. And I think, like, one of the things I saw, like, that back nine on Sunday at Augusta National, you know, obviously the putter's always been, the big question mark with, with Wills Al Torres and the arm lock kind of um, brought him from mini tour to the PGA tour is like, can he make putts on Sunday in the afternoon? And I think la- last year we saw at the masters as well as the, the open championship, like what caused him a couple year delay to getting to the tour. Agreed. And that makes me wonder if he ever wins. No, it's it's a clear concern. I think he's shown an ability to put himself into contention. He's really young. He knows what he has to work on, and and I I like that he only he knows what his weaknesses are. There are other players who, when you look at their strengths and weaknesses, there's a couple things they need to clean up going into the next season. And it is I think there's something promising about when you have one clear weakness. If you're feeling good with the putter that week, you could win. Um, so I, I am pretty bullish on Will Zalatoris in general. He he's al- he's also a guy that could strike his way to a win. Yeah, like he could just be so good that nobody else even has a shot, even if he puts average. Which is like there aren't a lot of guys like that on tour. I agree, and I, I think you can make the same to say that you don't to say somebody doesn't think they're going Will Zalatoris will win because of the putter is valid. But you could make the same argument about a lot of players who have won big golf tournaments, like Hideki Matsuyama, right? Who comes out and wins the Masters. So again, you just have to find it for one week or strike your way there, or hit some really good chip shots. I think Will Zalatoris is capable of that. All right, you might you might have turned me around on him. I've just gotten really really out on it because of of the the optics of the stroke. I think that's fair though. I'm not I'm not suggesting that it isn't. But again. It's not like he also has all of these other holes in his game and he just caught fire for four weeks. But yeah, to get to, get to some longer shots, this is a player we have very limited information about, but I am interested in seeing what Hayden Buckley does this year. He's, he's proven that he can win on multiple tours now, was a really good college player. And in the small sample of events we have from the fall, his driving accuracy is remarkable and he also hits the ball long he could be a true great ball striker on the tour again really limited sample size but he had two top tens in the fall swing and then three bad appearances that's the thing you you're looking like i always like try and think about guys that were like in the mix on saturday even a lot but like maybe had just a bad final round because like what we talked about at the beginning like you get uncomfortable and then you don't play your best. But like two top tens for a rookie is a big deal because that means he was like in the mix. Yeah, and I, and I believe he played really well in the Corn Ferry Tour playoffs. He's won multiple times on development tours. Uh, again, really good college player. And when I say that his driving accuracy numbers are good, you're, you're looking at somebody who 
If he were to replicate what he did in the fall all season, he'd be by far the most accurate driver on tour. I don't expect that to happen. I don't think, again, that it's much more likely that he regresses towards a much more PJ Tour average number, but he could be a top 25, 30 most accurate player on tour, also hitting it far. That's a recipe for making a lot of money. And that that's like effectively like what Victor Hovland has going for him. Yeah, I don't know that he hits it quite as far as Victor Hovland, but you're exactly right that from a driving profile perspective, they would check out pretty similarly. Now, I doubt his iron play is quite as good. I'd honestly be surprised if his putting is as good, but mm-hmm. we're just talking about somebody who, you know, maybe could get to, you know, this, the second round of the playoffs or something like that. Yeah, and you're talking about a guy who's a young guy who might become a top 30 player you know, in the world, like legitimately chance to be that because of different profile, you know, and that's like the important thing with, with, uh, with all this conversation. It's not like, it's just like a guy that you don't see coming and is undervalued that you could pencil in, you just watch and you could be the guy early on the Island. Sure. And, and another name like that, I don't think he's quite as under the radar, but Eric Van Royen, I know he's a shotgun start favorite. Um, he, he's, very similar he's kind of like a Corey connors in his profile the short game's really bad but the ball striking is really really good and he hits it straight he hits it long especially the second half of the year i think eric van royen could be somebody who again makes a lot of cuts maybe finds a hot putter and gets himself into contention in the big event especially if you have a course we're hitting driver a lot maybe some penal rough could see an eric van royen making a splash I like Corey Connors. Is that is that crazy? I, I, like I just like believe that at some point he can become an average chipper of the golf ball. Is that a fleeting thought? I think with with Corey Connors, I almost group him with like an Abraham answer, and I don't know if that's <laughs> makes sense to people or not. But they're both really straight drivers of the golf ball. They don't hit the ball particularly far. Connors hits it farther than answer. I wonder what they do to take the next step. And at some level, you know, Corey Connors has been on tour for a while. What's he going to do this off season to ascend the rankings? Is it going to be clean up the short game? Cause he's, he's probably known that the last couple of years. And I, I do think wonder, he should buy an arm lock putter. Okay. Go to, go to Dick's and, or golf galaxy Buy buy an arm lock. To start. It worked for a lot of other guys. I don't think that's crazy at all, but that's where I come to like, well, what is going to be, what takes this player, to the next step. And with Corey Connors, he should know what that is. I'm sure he does. It's pretty obvious. But I think with some of these other players where they have a little bit more power and uh, they have one thing they can clean up that gets them into contention in a lot of golf tournaments. Yeah, Corey Connors does fit that profile, but I feel like we've seen this for a few years now. And I am interested in what, what that could actually be that takes him to the next level. So, so you're saying I'm falling for the, the same same trick for the fifth straight year i'm not saying that i think Corey connors is isn't going to have a good season it's just how does he win a big time golf tournament well that's what i i'm saying i guess this is like the argument for zal torres too it, it, like I, zal torres is better than Corey connors though and younger so i guess that's the argument for zal torres over connors in in this category so i just lost my my own uh my own thought. I'm. I'm just. Uh, it's like the same thing with Fleetwood. Like Fleetwood, you could put in the same bucket. Who obviously has regressed uh, significantly the last two years from you know a top fringe top ten player in the world. Is like you saw. It, like he was a great driver, great iron player, but like would the putter ever come around? And it it just hasn't. Yeah, I actually have some Fleetwood notes <laughs> when I was looking over some data in preparation for this. I think one thing about Fleetwood that's a bit concerning I mean I would love to see him regain his form he was a very accurate driver of the golf ball in like 2018 I'm, I'm sure even into 2019 that has fallen off quite a bit and he he's not he's not driving the ball accurately at all so when you combine being inaccurate off the tee with really bad putting I don't like to see when you have two skills that <laughs> can come back to bite you in any given week he he had a couple good finishes on the European tour. That's kind of boosting his world ranking right now. You'd have to do a lot of digging to find some good PGA tour finishes from Fleetwood. 
Yeah, I mean, I, he's, he's just been kind of irrelevant in in. I think like that's the thing is like when you are clearly deficient in certain skills, I think one of the things that happens is it puts more pressure on your the skills that are really good. And those skills are eventually going to deteriorate or have bad years. And when those when that happens, like it you it, it really exposes you as as a golfer. Like it's why like it's really the 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 tricky thing with golf is like do you work really hard to improve your weaknesses and potentially sacrifice some of your strong, you know, your strong suits by working really hard at your weaknesses? Or do you just keep getting better at what you're really good at and figure maybe you get hot with, with the putter for a week, or maybe you drive, like, I don't think you could really drive it really bad and have a long PGA tour career, but who knows, you know? Yeah. And I think one of the most interesting storylines of the next decade is how does Colin Morikawa do at Augusta? Like that, that is a fascinating puzzle in my opinion, uh, he does have some weaknesses with the short game, and you know I was just recently rewatching some of his rounds at Augusta. Like there, there are shots for him out there that are very challenging, especially when you're giving up distance to the field. I was just watching him hit a wood into number five at Augusta on his second shot. Like, where does that ball end up? He's gonna have to get a tricky up and down there most of the time. Is he able to do that? And I think that's the big question mark with Morikawa at Augusta for the next 10 years. Also, how does he play hole 13? He's kind of struggled with it. That's a tight drive when you like that stock fade. And then, you know, I know he prefers hitting that cut. You're hitting off a side hill lie. He put one in the creek last year on his approach shot. Like, I, I think there's some really challenging shots out there for Morikawa, especially when you're giving up distance to the field. I think distance is a little overrated at this point at Augusta because I think it was underrated when, when the average driver hit it 280, you know? It was, you know, so important to hit it 300 to get over hills. But now everybody gets over hills at 300. But, like, I do agree with the shot shape thing. And, like, reinstate the back tee on five brings distance, makes distance so important on five. And they're adding a back tee on 15, you know, that we know of. So that's going to make 15 a lot tougher for a shorter hitter. So maybe you're, you know... Distance might be more important this year than it has been. I, I, so in general, when I, anytime I talk about distance, I'm always referring to the second shot as well because that's a huge part of the story with why distance is an advantage. And 15 is the example that I was going to bring up even before you just mentioned that new tee. It's very difficult to hit a long shot into the 15th green and hold it. It's also hard to lay up there and hit a wedge into that hole. So when you talk about distance being an advantage at Augusta, 15 is a pretty clear example. And again, was just watching Morikawa's round. He hit one over the back, ricocheted off that hill long of the green and went into the pond beyond the hole. If he was 10 yards closer to the hole, maybe he hits a little bit less club, comes in a little higher and it stops. So I think distance is still a big advantage at Augusta, not on every hole, but it's going to be a relevant part of the Morikawa story at Augusta. And I'm not saying he can't win there. He can yeah, I, I always think in what you hit on earlier is like short games always the undervalued skill at, at Augusta that's really important. And all you have to do is like watch Jordan Spieth play Augusta and you see how important short game is because the guy like, you know, that short grass all around the greens just ex accentuates the skill. And if you're uber skilled, you can get up and down from everywhere because you have a perfect lie, right? But if you're if you're not so if you don't trust it, like a guy like, you know, who's played really well there, but it's more so because of his ball striking prowess, Lee Westwood, you know, Lee Westwood's pulling out putter. He's who? Westy. I'm kidding. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't hate on don't hate on him. You know, he, he might have another year of magic in him. But uh <laughs> but you know, he like you watch him around the greens and it's just terrifying. He's you see him grabbing his putter all over the place and you're like you know, he's just trying to get down in three versus like guys like Spieth. Like, I think he legitimately thinks he can hold any shot when it's in a short grass and he's around the green. I mean, I don't think you have to look at too many leaderboards to confirm that point. In 2018, it was what Reed, Fowler, Spieth and Rory at the top of that leaderboard. I mean, those those are players with short game. 
Yeah. I you know, I'm waiting for JT. I I really do believe he's gonna play really he's gonna gonna win a Masters because like he's got he's got that short game that like I don't know statistically if this bears it out, but I like feel like he like is going to chip in. So I'm always like he's like a a guy like a great putter where he's not a great putter. He's a great chipper, like where you really think he might hole out any any chip. Yeah, I mean I have I have his numbers around the green being very strong especially in 2021 um the clear issue with him is the putter right now but i believe that can flip around again that's the nice thing about putting being high variance if you believe that justin thomas has had two decades of good putting you know and now he's just had a little bit of a drop off that can turn around so i'm with you i think justin thomas has tons of potential he could be a breakout player <laughs> yeah exactly but again how about I've always watched him on hole 13. I think that's an interesting example of uh, let's see what let's see how JT plays that hole in general because that's a big tee shot. Not all holes are equal at Augusta. It be uh, I I wonder if anybody ever I I'm not like an equipment junkie. If every anyone ever looks at like putting like a a super draw bias three wood in the bag for like the just for the 13th tee shot since it's so important. I don't think that's a crazy decision. I mean, I think players in general could be more thoughtful about their equipment stack and what, what wedges you have and, and all of those things. So I don't think a super draw three wood is crazy at all. Like, cause that tee shot, I mean, you, you look at it, it's like, that's the difference between a par and a potential Eagle chance. Like every day is finding that fairway. Yeah. I think I was watching Morikawa. I think he caught a tree trying to take a pretty tight line with a cut and then he left himself 260 in. I think he still ended up making birdie by stuffing a wedge. But that's you're right. Like that's the difference between a potential eagle look and a par. So uh, another good lesson for people to be thinking about range of outcomes on a hole, and not all holes are equal, right? There's there are certain holes where the difference between a good shot and a bad shot is much bigger than on other holes. Yeah, in a way, 15s become the more compelling par five though on that back nine. I think I'm, I'm interested in your perspective on 15. I feel like architecturally. It gets a lot of criticism, and I, I kind of—it's of... not as good of a hole, but like for the modern game, I just think it 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 asks that question. It asks on the second shot. I think it it really you you can't miss short. Like these guys are afraid of missing short, and then they send it long. And if you lay up, like it's actually like the reverse of what you think. You know, you should be on the left side when you think you should be on the right side, uh, especially to the left pin. If you know, I just think that that hole induces such huge numbers you know like we saw it with uh Sergio a couple years ago you saw it with Cabrera a few years before that but like just in general I think like you know that's a whole like you're you can ruin rounds on it you know 13 you play bad you make a six that hole you play bad you could walk away with a 11 yeah and another interesting point now that we're, we're talking about this on 15 is it so often golf tournaments don't get to 18 I mean, they get there, but the shots aren't that important, right? Like Tiger just needs to make a bogey. 15 is going to be relevant, even in kind of a blowout. We saw it with Hideki this year where he suddenly brought the field back into play with one loose shot. And I think hole 15 has had some of the sneaky best shots in the history of golf, honestly. I think Sergio's. I think Vijay Singh's shot in 2000, if people aren't familiar with that, is one of the best golf shots in, in the history of golf. Tiger's shot into that, into 15 and his win. 2019. Incredible. So I think that's always going to bring suspense, and that's something that... Sergio's was insane. Sergio's was one of the best shots I've ever seen in my life. Was Saracen's shot 15? The shot heard around the world? You're asking somebody from the wrong generation on that one. I think it was 15. I, I feel like it's blasphemy that we don't know. I mean, like this is just such a random example, but Mark Leishman hit an incredible shot on that hole. I think it was, I can't remember if it was this year or the year before, but some kind of peeling draw around that tree that was like one of the best shots probably of the year. And I think Siwoo Kim broke his putter on that hole as well. So it, it usually brings excitement. Sarazen, Sarazen's 15, double eagle. I must have missed that one. It's the, it's the shot I heard around the world. How do you, come on. Um. All right. Now, like, not to talk negative. Who are who are some prime regressors? Yeah, this is that. That's always the t the tough question. So, uh, 
I don't want this to be interpreted as people who I don't think are good. <laughs> no. I mean, they got to a point that might have been just like, hey, they were playing the best golf. They're, they're in the best circumstance of their life. Right. And so uh, I think there are some clear candidates like a Kokrak, potentially like a Louis Oosthuizen who just had a historic putting year and you never know if that's going to hold up. I think a more interesting name to potentially talk about is Sam Burns, who I'm not I'm not predicting that he's going to fall off, but he just played a stretch of incredible golf, got himself into contention a lot. He's ranked 10th in the world right now. Is that his ceiling? Like it, it easily could be, but he's so talented that you never know. So I think that's a really interesting name to watch over the next 18 months. Where I default with him is like, where he stacked with his peers, you know, he was he was the college player of the year when Morikawa was in college, and you know, John Rom. I think John no John Rom wasn't was done at that point. But like you know, when all these guys were in college in that Morikawa generation, Sam Burns was the player of the year, you know, and I think that to me carries a lot of weight that tells me that he wasn't out. He's not out of his depth here. And then he has like, he has the guy that like, I kind of look at it and it's like, if he just tightens up a little bit here and there, he's got the intangibles to be really great. Cause he's a good putter and he's very powerful. And, you know, last year it was just about like becoming a above average iron player. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. When, is he of the caliber of the names around him is, is the question, right? Like, is he a Justin Thomas, a, a Patrick Cantlay, a Xander Shoffley? Like, maybe, and, and he could be. The other thing that's underrated about Sam Burns, you know, he's had this for, you know, back to amateur golf days and junior golf days. He's one of the cockiest SOBs out there, you know? And I think, like, irrational confidence is a big thing with golf. Like, I think Sam Burns believes that he might be the best player in the world. And I think that carries some serious weight into getting there. Like, you have to believe there's no, I, don't, I have no doubt that there's immense self-confidence in that, in that guy. So I'm, I'm, I'm not buying on the regressor, regress, regression from Sam Burns. No, that's, that's fair. And I, I also think he showed in his, when he was paired with Tiger in a final round a couple years ago, that, he he clearly has that mental edge to be a great player. So it, this is not an argument that I see something that Sam Burns isn't great. I just see some of the names around him, and I think their expectations should be higher. One other name maybe for a potential regression candidate would be Dustin Johnson. It pains me to say it, but I wonder. His driving was not good in 2021. Uh, it seems like anytime he hits the ball remotely straight, he's right in contention because he's really cleaned up his short game and his putting has become very good. How motivated is he to keep the putting sharp? Does the driving accuracy get a little bit better? I don't think you're going to... I think we're past the days of Dustin Johnson being in contention week in and week out. I think he'll show flashes, but we, we might be past his week in and week out dominance. A couple years ago, I I had a take that Justin Johnson was going to regress, and then he had like the best year of his career. I think it was twenty eighteen. I th- and, and he had the knee thing going on, and and I was like, oh, you know, like this is the thing with power is that it's a fleeting skill. Like you know, like youth is always going to be rewarded when your game is centered around power and driving, and that's I think we've seen it with like players over the last 20 years, you see it like you can only be at the top of the strokes gained off the tee mountain for so long. And Dustin Johnson was the guy at the top of the strokes gained off the tee mountain for a very long time. And the reality is, is like there's younger, faster guys now on tour. And like DJ is not going to be a perennial top three off the tee guy forever. And I think that's where like, that's, you know, a dip to 20th or 18th in that, it is the difference between him being a top five player and a top 20 player. Agree. And I'll give him a lot of credit. He really has cleaned up some parts of his game. Like his wedge play has come such a long way and and he is a very good putter, but I think that's where I, I don't have real strong reasons to question his motivation, but those are skills that you have to be really grinding to keep sharp. He's 37. Maybe he's 
maybe he's fully motivated, you know, to keep the putting sharp. But when I see really bad driving accuracy, I, I wonder what 2022 is going to look like for Dustin and how motivated he is. But I will say, I think he's one of the most, I think he gets a bad rap for his mental. People call him, the, people say he's dumb. And I think he's one of the smartest athletes in the world at being an athlete. I think like competitively, he's a, a genius. And I'll never forget, there was a No Laying Up podcast with Danielle Kang years ago. And she talked about going into Pinehurst since the men had just played. She has a relationship with Dustin Johnson, called him to ask questions about it. And he could go hole by hole, every single spot you'd want to miss. Apparently, like photographic memory, which, which made a ton of sense to me that Dustin Johnson's that way. Definitely one of the most misunderstood athletes of all time because it's it's just like you don't see the competitiveness in golf the way you see it in other sports. And you don't see like necessarily the brilliance. The brilliance is like his has been masked by the driving distance and the just that skill that was like, you know, he was a unicorn of of 10 years ago. He was the freak of nature. You know, he's not the freak of nature anymore, but like. You know, also, like, the way he's improved every aspect of his game is kind of insane. Like, he's he's gone from being, like, kind of a one-trick pony to one of the most well-rounded players on tour. No, yeah, I completely agree. And I don't think you need any other examples of his mental toughness other than watching him walk off the green at Chambers Bay. Like, I, I'll, that will always stick with me. So, I get, when, I say, when I say regress, Cham- I think... Chambers Bay, Pebble Beach. Yeah. And when I say regress, I think I'm, I'm talking about being ranked third in the world. Like a year from now, will he be ranked third in the world? I doubt that, but this is not a knock on his talent. All right. We're going to cut it here. I think we're going to have you back uh, pretty regularly this year and uh, talking all things golf and analytics and, and what's going on on the tour. So, Joseph, uh, where can people find more of your work? Yeah, I can be found on my Substack which is findingtheedge.substack.com. Or you can connect with me on Twitter at Joseph Lamagna. That's L-A-M-A-G-N-A. So either one of those spots is good. Trying to get a little more Twitter active this year, so feel free to engage. Trying trying to get more active on the wasteland, you know. (laughs) I'm trying to get less active. You're trying to get more active. That's good to hear that you're thinking about getting less active because I heard they increased the PIP money for next year. So if I have less competition, that's excellent. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll talk to you soon. And uh, thanks for coming on. Highly recommend Joseph's work. I read it every week. Um, Go check out his Substack and follow him on Twitter. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me.